It's not really a burden, mate. Uh, I mean, I'd be at home marking 60 essays. If, so uh, so th this, this is wonderful relief uh, to, to do, you know, to be in this happy place uh, with this happy bunch of people. Uh, Jeff mentioned my podcast, um, that's very kind, but uh, I interviewed for the podcast um, last year um, one of the world's best known historians. And he's a hugely uh, best-selling historian. His name is Tom Holland. And he's uh, extremely well-known in historical circles, but he's also become a very popular uh, historian. He's done some nerdy things, like translate the Greek uh, writer, the ancient Greek writer Herodotus. I don't know if anyone's up for that. Uh, but if you've ever been interested in such a thing, it's there. But actually, he's best known for these sweeping histories written for people who aren't historians uh, of Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, Europe, and so on, and, and it's just marvelous. But uh, his latest monster, his latest book is called Dominion, and its subtitle is really interesting and really uh, perked up my ears, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And that's why I wanted him on the podcast, because interestingly, Tom Holland is not a Christian. But he's saying some very interesting things about Christianity that is causing a little bit of a stir. Uh, he, a few years ago, admitted in public that it had just dawned on him that the secular intellectual values that he most admires, like charity, humility, compassion, human rights, cannot have come from ancient Persia or ancient Greece, or ancient Rome, because those values of equality and charity and humility did not exist in those cultures. And he said, these values certainly did not come from the 18th century secular enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson and all that. Why? Because those values of charity and humility and human rights and equality were already well in place centuries before Thomas Jefferson. So where did these values come from? How did they come to dominate the West? Well, his argument is fascinating. And that's what this book is all about. He says, our culture was completely reshaped by this. He's more precise than that, actually. He reckons it was completely reshaped by this bit. The four Gospels. The account of Jesus' life, teaching, healings, death, and resurrection. And he says that between the years 500 and 1500, these gospels came to so influence the Greek and Roman world and then the British world and the whole European world and then everywhere else that it actually gave us the values that we now adore. Tom Holland, as someone who is not yet a Christian, reckons the Christian faith is good news for the world. And good news is exactly what these gospels call themselves. It's actually what the word gospel means. You probably already knew this, but it's in the opening line of Mark's gospel just read to us, the beginning of the 
gospel, that word means good news, about Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God. Now, at the time Mark wrote this, in the first century, when the eyewitnesses were still all alive, this word gospel wasn't a religious word. I know, you know, for us, we think gospel is a religious word, but actually, in the time, it was a media term. I reckon the closest equivalent we have to this word gospel is breaking news, but it usually meant good breaking news, not bad breaking news. Here are some examples from outside the Bible from around the time that Mark wrote his gospel, announcing a new emperor, uh, Caligula, and quicker than thought, the gospel, good news, of the new emperor spread to the east, or announcing a military victory. Two of the archers hurried to Sparta, bringing the good news, the gospel, that the enemy had been captured. And then occasionally there's funny examples, like this one from an ancient Greek play from Aristophanes. Uh, the butcher rushes into the war cabinet of the council and says, councillors, I bring you a gospel. Never have anchovies been cheaper at the market. And I'm glad you laughed because ancient Greeks laughed because the word gospel or good news was um, almost always only used for big breaking good news. And here it's not a military victory or a new emperor, it's anchovies, can you believe the price? But by using this very well-known secular word gospel in his opening line, Mark was making clear that this is breaking news, good news for the world. This is public. And in the next three weeks, I want to explore some of the ways the Christian faith is good news. Whether or not you believe it, like Tom Holland, Good news for our culture, but good news for us individually. And I want to do this by zeroing in on the first couple of chapters of the first biography of Jesus that we have. We have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I want to zero in on the one that was written first, Mark. And I'm using the word biography of the Gospel of Mark deliberately. This is the uh, first and perhaps strange thing I want to say about Christianity. Christianity is biographical. Biographical. Uh, I mean, it is fundamentally about knowing and trusting a person. Um, this hits us from the opening line as well, where Mark simply says that this gospel is about what? It's about Jesus. It's about a person. The Christian faith is singularly focused on Jesus. Now, you know, nerdy scholars have done things like count up all the verbs in the Gospels and worked out that 25% of the verbs, that's the doing words, uh, have Jesus as the subject. Jesus went, Jesus saw, Jesus spoke, right? No other figure in the Gospels has more than 1% of the verbs. 25%, not even 1%. That tells you something about the Christian faith. The founding documents of Christianity, the first four books of the New Testament are biographies. 
Now, if you're a Christian and uh, you're so used to this, you might be there going, yeah, Dixon, move on to the next point. But actually, this is remarkable. If you put it in an ancient religious context or a, a universal religious context, no other religion has biographies for their founding documents. If you think of the scriptures of Hinduism and, and Buddhism and Islam, there's loads of scripture that have uh, wonderful rituals, uh, philosophies, uh, law codes, but no religion has biographies as their founding texts. You might say, so what? Well, here's why I think it's great news. If you don't know what to make of religion at all, and your impression is religion is so onerous, it's full of rules and regulations and rituals, and I'm just not up for that, here's the good news. Christianity isn't like that. Christianity isn't about getting to know rules and regulations and rituals. Christianity is more like getting to know a person. In fact, Christianity is getting to know a person. I'm going to say more about that at the end. But the signal is the founding texts of the Christian faith are biographies. Christianity is biographical. The second thing I want to say just a broad comment about the Christian faith, is that Christianity is also historical. It's biographical, yes, but it's also historical. And I reckon this is fantastic news. If you're here in the building or you're watching online, you're thinking, I like to imagine that religion has some solid basis, evidence that it can be verified. I think this is very good news about the Christian faith. Again, uh, think of the world religions. I mean, no disrespect here, and I know for a fact that Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims would totally agree with what I'm about to say. I know this because I've had many chats with them, and I used to teach this at university. Hinduism focuses on the wisdom passed on by the gods at the dawn of time to the first human, and then that's been passed on as wisdom uh, right into modern Hinduism. Buddhism focuses on the philosophical insight that the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, had one night in May, and from that insight, he produced a Buddhism. Islam focuses on the very words dictated to Muhammad, their prophet, uh, by the angel Gabriel, the very words of God. Now, within these texts, you find incredible insights and culture and ritual and ethics, but you don't find history. Now, sometimes the other religions point this out about Christianity because they think it makes Christianity vulnerable because other religions are immune to historical criticism because there's not something in the Quran that you can go, aha, there's a historical mistake because they don't make claims about things happening in time and space, but Christianity does, left, right, and center. It's about history. It's about a teacher uh, whose teachings we can locate in a particular time and space, whose uh, the, the groups he's debating with, we know for certain existed in that time and space. 
Christianity focuses on a healer whose activity is reported not just in Christian scripture, not just in the gospels, but in non-Christian writings from the time, mentioning Jesus' bizarre powers. The death of Jesus didn't occur in some dream or mystical time. The death of Jesus occurred by crucifixion under the fifth governor of Judea, whose dates we exactly know. And even the resurrection has such good evidence that secular historians today are still puzzling about what could explain the evidence we have. My point is, Christianity is historical. Now, ancient readers will have spotted this in the first line, because the word gospel didn't mean religious message, it meant breaking news from the real world. So ancient readers suddenly knew, oh, okay, so this is, this is historical news. But actually, when they got to the second paragraph, they really knew they were in history, because this mentions a really famous historical figure, John the Baptist. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. We think of John the Baptist as that strange figure at the front of all the Gospels. We think of him as a religious and biblical figure. But did you know, ancient people in the first century, when they read this in Mark, they already knew John the Baptist was a famous figure from outside the Bible history as well. Here is a first century non-Christian text referring to the same John the Baptist, written in the first century. We read, John, surnamed the baptizer, this is Josephus, a Jewish, non-Christian writer from the first century, had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. The crowds were aroused to the highest degree by his speeches, and Herod Antipas became alarmed, so John was brought in chains to Machaerus, Herod's stronghold. The same basic data in a completely separate text from the same time, we're in the realm of history. And, and did you notice that Mark begins the ministry of Jesus by this date, by the arrest of John the Baptist? Because there in verse 14 we read, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. My point, if it's lost, is this is real history. This is the kind of history where if you were able to go back in a time machine to the year 28 AD, you could hear John the Baptist. You would see him arrested. And upon that arrest, you'd find this other man, Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph, launch his ministry. It's historical. Oh, and by the way, you know, they recently discovered the front page of Mark's gospel. How cool is this? How pretty is, are these fragments? Don't you think they're gorgeous? In fact, this is the very passage I'm preaching from. Uh, on the front uh, of the papyrus is the John the Baptist scene, and on the back, uh, it's the calling of the disciples, which we'll get to in a moment. This is history. It's not legend. It's not even, strictly speaking, a religious treatise. The gospel is locatable, datable history. I think that is good news. Christianity is biographical. 
focused on a person. It's historical, grounded in real world events. My third point might sound weird, but bear with me and hopefully the weirdness will subside. Thirdly, Christianity is Jewish. Christianity is Jewish. Hmm. Yeah, one of the key themes from the opening chapter of Mark's gospel is that the events of Jesus' life fulfill a huge backstory. And Mark alerts us to this in the second line, pretty much. So he says the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and then he immediately goes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, and so on. This is an Old Testament Jewish scriptures prediction that before the Lord comes into history, there will be some prophetic figure who will prepare everyone. And that turns out to be John the Baptist, but the point is this narrative of Christ is rooted in a huge backstory. There's another example in the very next paragraph because Jesus turns up here at the wilderness and we're told that at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now when you read that, you might think, okay, that, that's a story about Jesus being vindicated. It's a little bit bizarre, don't really know how to fit it in, but it's part of a huge conversation. Because this scene of John the Baptist, a prophet figure, with Jesus and the Spirit coming on him and him being called the Son of God recalls the Old Testament King David, 1000 BC. Because there's a scene in the Old Testament where another prophet, Samuel, comes to David and the Spirit falls upon David. He is anointed to speak and act for God. And what's more, King David is called God's son in a metaphorical sense. And this gave rise to the hope in ancient Israel that one day there would come a descendant of King David who would be completely filled with this spirit and who would be God's son, not in a metaphor for kingship, but in reality, the very son of the living God. And that is what is going on in these verses 9, 11, where the spirit descends on Jesus and the voice from heaven calls him son of God. And that's exactly what's behind the first words of Jesus, a paragraph or so later. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And listen to what he says. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near repent and believe the good news. Now these words, the time has come, is literally the time is fulfilled. He uses the word uh, peploroma, which means a fulfillment of something. And so Jesus is not just saying, oh, the time has arrived. He's saying the time is fulfilled, the time you've been waiting for, for the descendant of King David, filled with the Spirit to speak and act for God, it is fulfilled. Why does this matter? Well, I think trying to understand Christianity without knowing the backstory, the Jewish Old Testament backstory, 
is a little bit like walking into a conversation halfway through and having no idea what's being talked about. Have you ever had that happen? When I spoke at a previous service, someone down here went, he went obviously it had happened like yesterday or something because he went, Like imagine you come to my office at Wheaton College, just as you hear me saying to a colleague, you're an idiot and it's a wonder anyone ever listens to you. You might be nervously laugh like you just did. <laughs> You'd be completely clueless what was going on until you understood, had you been there five minutes earlier, that I was just explaining what someone had just said to me on Twitter. You're an idiot, it's a wonder anyone listens to you, Dixon. See, if you miss the first part of the conversation, it's all a little bit weird. And my point is the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures are the first part of the conversation and they light up the life of Jesus. Why is this good news though? Because huh. it means Christianity didn't pop out of nowhere. Jesus isn't the founder of a new religion. With all due respect, to the uh, dictionaries, you look up Jesus, it says founder of Christianity, rubbish. He's the fulfillment of a giant backstory that goes back to the dawn of human history. And the reason I love this is sometimes I'm so tired of the fads of our culture. We chase one thing this week and another thing next week and so hard to keep up with it. And as much as I love change and I love progress, sometimes I am weary of how ephemeral and thin our culture is and it's rapid changing ideas. It's like fairy floss, which I learnt last night is called cotton candy here in this country. <laughs> But I want to start a movement that you start calling it fairy floss. Doesn't that sound prettier? <laughs> oh, can I have some fairy floss? Right. Okay, cotton candy. You get cotton candy. It's bright. It, it, it attracts your attention. And you, 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 you put your mouth into it and, and, and it disappears. It's like yummy and gone. Huh. And I'm just telling you personally, the longer I live the more I am sick of the cotton candy of our culture. I want something that is grounded in a massive backstory. Something that has proven itself from deep time to meet real human needs. That is relevant not because it's shiny and sweet, but because it's true and profound and will ground your life. And I find that in Jesus Christ. Who is part of a massive Jewish backstory. Christianity is biographical. It is historical. It is Jewish. Fourthly and finally, it's personal. It's personal. The first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel, and I could probably show you this from the other gospels as well, but Mark is great. The first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel are a call to personal trust in him. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. So he, he is the king, descendant of King David, the one anointed with all of God's 
power to speak and act. But look what he says. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I know the word repent is a bit damaged, or at least it, it is where I come from in Australia. Repent is sometimes like a really ugly word, especially if you're not used to church life. You, you only sort of have seen it in a Simpsons episode, you know, with an angry preacher or some movie, where it's like, it's like the swear word preachers are allowed to say. You know what I mean? Like they, they thump a pulpit and go, repent. It's like, I hate your guts. You know, like that's the impression we have in Australia of this word repent, which is really sad because it's a fantastic word. The word metanoia, repent, just means change your mind. That's all it means. Meta, change. Noia, your noggin, your head. Metanoia, change mind. And the word believe doesn't just mean think something is true, nor does it mean, you know, take a leap into the dark. It just means trust. Change your mind and trust. Now, the importance of knowing that is that by definition, these opening words of Jesus are about our inner life, not our external practices. Change mind, trust. Christianity is not about external rituals and legislation. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, constantly, uh, Jesus is urging people for more personal trust. So the very next lines, um, Simon and Andrew, in the passage just read to us, uh, have Jesus come and say, follow me, and they change their mind and trust him. And then the very next lines after this, James and John get their turn. Jesus comes along and they change their minds and trust him. It is constantly about the inner life. It's personal. And in the next um, two weeks after this, I want to zero in on uh, two particular individuals who meet Jesus and have their life transformed. But my point for now is that Christianity is deeply personal in a way that hasn't been true of religion throughout human history. As strange as this may sound to our ears, ancient religion was mainly ritualistic and performative. What do I mean? Mostly through human history, religion was about set days and set festivals and set rituals and set behaviors. Ancient people generally thought of religion the way we now think of, say, Thanksgiving or Independence Day. No one really minds what you think in your heart about the first 4th of July. No one really minds what you think in your heart about what happened on the first Thanksgiving. The only thing we really worry about is that you're sort of civically performing the duty, that you civically recognize uh, the day. Well, that is how, for most of human history, most people have thought about religion. It's performative. It's ritualistic. And Christianity completely changed this and gave us a religion of the heart, where festivals and rituals hardly matter at all. And, and I'm, I'm saying this in the wake of Easter, right, just last week. I love Easter, but it's not mentioned in the Bible. Now, of course, the death of Jesus is mentioned in the Bible, yes. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, yes, it's everywhere in the Gospels, but the, the notion that you have a festival about it, a ritual around it, no, it isn't. 
There have been highly ritualistic and legislative versions of Christianity, I admit. I'm sorry about that. Because for some of you here, or maybe watching, it's put you off the whole thing. As Christianity has morphed back into that more human idea of religion as simply performative and regulative. But that's not what you find in the founding documents. What you find in the founding documents is a personal, inner world heart change. Christ calls you by name to change your mind and trust. Christianity is biographical, yes. It's about a person. It's historical, by which I mean it's founded on real events. It's Jewish, by which I mean it's the fulfillment of a giant backstory that has stood the test of time. And it is personal. It calls on each one of us not simply to perform something, but to have a heart change. In the next two weeks, I want to look at more aspects of this good news. And I hope you'll come uh, back uh, for those. But for now, let me just say, all I reckon would be a really good response to what I've said is to take um, a little step in the right direction. I am especially thinking of those who aren't sure what to make of Christianity. And it, it was lovely last night. Jeff and I went to dinner and the table next to us had some people there uh, who had come to the previous service and, um, and uh, they weren't usually going to church. And they, they expressed you know, some, some real sort of warm response to the things that were said in the service because though they hadn't been to church for quite some time, they felt there could be something here for them to mull over, to ponder. I was so encouraged. But the thing is, I'm not asking you to make a giant leap off the stage into the arms of Jesus. Just take a little step in the right direction. Maybe that means pick up Mark's gospel and start reading it. And I'll see you next week for more of that. Maybe it means just turning up at church and having a little listen. Maybe plugging into that little Bible study series. I don't know, like don't overdo it. <laughs> just a little step in the right direction. And I say this because I've got this mate, Graham, in Sydney. And he's a statistician. They're a very special kind of person, statisticians. <laughs> and he's a kind of cross every T, dot every I before you make a move kind of character. And he's always asking me questions about Christianity. And it's clear over the years, he has moved to think there probably is a God and it's probably got something to do with Jesus. But he won't make any step toward Christianity. It's just questioning, 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 questioning. And I once had a coffee with him in North Sydney. I said, mate, you got all these questions. Like, is there ever a point where you're gonna like make some move toward Christianity? And he said, oh no, but like in my industry, you know, when I'm dealing with a mathematical formula and data, it's really important to cross every T, dot every I before you make any moves. And I said, okay, fine. But have you ever tried that policy in a human relationship? And he went, oh yeah, I've done that once or twice. It's terrible, 
terrible. I said, Graham, Christianity is way more like a human relationship than it is a mathematical formula. In a human relationship, you just take a little step in the right direction. Little. And you see what comes back. And if what comes back is warm and substantial, you're confident to take another little step in the right direction and see what comes back. And I said to Graham, what I say to you, just take little steps in the right direction. Not giant leaps, little steps. Pick up a gospel, read it. Maybe come back to church. Whatever just feels like the right proportion to your hunch that Christianity has something valuable. And next week I hope to show you even more why I think Christianity, whether you believe or you don't believe, is fantastic news for all the world. God bless.